And uh, when our governors all put us under house arrest. I still didn't hear what you said. It's off. Oh. Wow. That's off? Good man, you're a good pastor. You know that, right? So you gotta put up with that thing standing there because, so I started doing this daily thing when all the craziness started. I started to teach through scripture and committed to giving people like a chapter a day and there are people that are expecting it, but today's been the kind of day where it just didn't happen. And driving down from the pastor's conference, there was no opportunity. I couldn't do it and drive at the same time. I thought about it. But decided it was not wise. So here we are. Would you um, join me in prayer about something? Dear Kelby, Miami, you guys, you have faith. And you have compassion in your heart. I have a friend, this guy who, back home in our church. His name is Jason Powers. He's a young man with a young family. And he went out back to uh, work alone tractor cutting some trees and a terrible accident happened and his legs ended up underneath that tractor and now he's in danger of losing one or both would you pray pray with me for Jason Jason Powers our father you hear our hearts and we have heard your promises promises that we could come you paid the price so we could come you paid a high price so that we could come into your throne room to the very presence of God of the universe. With our petition, we come in through the veil that is through the broken body of our king. And we just ask while here before you, on behalf of Jason Powers, would you please spare both his life and his limbs? Spare his legs that he may be able to serve his family with them and, and so serve you. Have mercy upon him, Lord, and raise him up and let him know that you are good. By one more gesture. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you guys for joining me in there. Ben, would you come up here for a second? I brought my, you guys may remember, 14 years ago, I adopted this infant. Come here, man. Come here. <laughs> this guy, look at how big this 14-year-old is. And honestly, right now, I'm only taller than him because I got boots on and he's got flat sneakers on. Look at the size of these hands on this child. <laughs> wait, wait, let's do the reach. Look at, look at this reach. <laughs> but more, more importantly is there's a spirit in here of a man of God God's going to use. So keep him in your prayers and, and remember him. Okay, Ben, you can sit down. Thank you. <laughs> oh, God has plans for this man's life. I don't know any other 14-year-old that just does time at pastor's conferences and does their days with a pastor. He spends more time with, um, and I, although I think, I think I'm onto something. I don't think it's good for kids to spend so much time with their peers, especially when they're male. They make each other dumber by the minute. 
You can hear it happening. It's, I mean, this guy, I, can spend, I can spend the day with this man and we're talking and we're having a good time and talking and communicating like normal humans. Put one of his peers in the vehicle and you can listen to the IQs plummeting, <laughs> spiraling. <laughs> That's profoundly true. Would you join me in the 10th chapter of the book of Acts for our study this evening? Acts chapter 10. There's a guy there named Cornelius, and I think he, he teaches us some things. God would speak to us some things from this guy, Cornelius. I'm grateful for this opportunity. It's always good to see you, you guys. It's good to see so many of you on Wednesday night, midweek. A blessing. Before we begin the story, before we read our text, let me remind you that it was the Lord Jesus himself who spoke to a guy named Cephas, told him he's going to change his name. His name is Cephas. That was his given name. But the day that the Lord Jesus said, who do men say that I am? And they collected all the wrong answers. But who do you say that I am? The guy that spoke up. Of course, he's the guy that's always speaking up. Was having a good day. And he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, which is profoundly insightful. It really is. And the Lord Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon, but Jonah, Simon, son of Jonah, Cephas, you are blessed. Flesh and blood did not reveal it to you, but my father, which is in heaven. That is, I know you did not just figure that out yourself. Flesh and blood didn't reveal it to you. You did not sort of um, just through observation and the study of prophecy and the study of scripture with your limited intellect, Mr. Fisherman, you did not just sort of conclude that. You didn't reason that one through. My father, which is in heaven, revealed it to you. At <laughs> that moment, you and I both can see that guy, Simon, going, Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. No doubt looking at the other guys. The other guys that he's been in a contest with over who's the greatest, who's the awesomest. He looked at them like, uh, I've got a connection. Our Father in heaven revealed it to me. And then the Lord Jesus said to him, and you, he said, you're going to get a name change. And you shall be Peter. You shall be Petros in Greek. But upon this Petra, this rock, I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. What is the rock that the church is built upon? What is the rock that Jesus Christ is building his church upon? No, it's not Peter. He was little rock. Petros, but the rock, Petra, the Petra, was the revelation of who he is, the revelation of who Jesus Christ is, that he is the son of the living God. 
That revelation is what makes us Christians. What makes us brothers and sisters to each other is that we have come to know this thing that he is. He's the Christ. He is the son of the living God. Additionally, on that occasion, the Son of God said to him, and to you I give the keys of the kingdom. Now he would later expand that to all of the disciples, to all of them. He would say, to you I give the keys of the kingdom, and he would say, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. That's a statement of imparting authority, right? But because he said, to you I give the keys of the kingdom, you guys all know those crazy church jokes about St. Peter. And where is he? At the pearly gates, like he's got a big giant scroll and he's checking off names, like he's the doorkeeper. What's your name? And that's not the deal. That's not, that's not what that meant. That's not what that was about. The real deal is that Simon Peter was chosen by the Lord to be the one he granted the honor to be the doorman, opening the door on the two most significant occasions. Recorded for us in the book of Acts, the first one, of course, was there on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Peter, on the day of Pentecost, was the spokesman, and he stood up and proclaimed, these men are not drunk like you think. Too early in the day for that. I've always been amused by that story because everybody in Jerusalem goes, wait a minute, aren't these all Galileans? They could apparently tell that by looking at them. Which makes you go, what do the Galileans look like? Everywhere you go, you know, there's a look, right? There's a regional look. I always think maybe the Galileans all had mullets. <laughs> or maybe they were all greasers. Or whatever the distinguishing trait was, country folk, people could look at them and go, those are Galileans. I don't know, perhaps if it were a different region, they go, are not all these Cubans? <laughs> and people could, you know, they could know, they could tell, they know the traits. They could tell a barber you've been to are not all these Galileans. How is it that we hear them all speaking Galileans in all our languages? It was miraculous, right? The spokesman that day was Peter. These men are not drunk like you suppose. No, this is the fulfillment of what the prophet Joel said. Peter, he proclaimed the gospel. He indicted the city of Jerusalem and the nation of Israel for the crucifixion of Christ. But he also told them it was the plan of God. It was a setup. He proclaimed the gospel to them so profoundly that 3,000 were cut to the heart. And they were crying out, what must we do to be saved? What do we have to do? Remember? And Peter was the one who said, repent and believe. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus. Peter was the doorman on that occasion. When the gospel first came, to the Jews. And remember, the gospel is to the Jew first and then the Gentile. Romans chapter 1, the apostle Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, but it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe to the Jew first and then the Gentile. And that's the deal. 
Jews got to hear it first. And Peter was the one who got to proclaim it to them first. I hope my accent is not leaving you out, and I'm not talking too fast or anything, am I? You, you with me? And, and my voice is a weird frequency. <laughs> it takes a few minutes to get used to. It scares children. <laughs> but you with me? Yeah. All right, so there would be a second occasion, and we're going to encounter that second occasion right here in Acts chapter 10. In Acts chapter 10, the gospel for the first time officially is going to be delivered to the Gentiles in a way that nobody ever imagined. Acts chapter 10, verse 1. There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of the band called the Italian band, a devout man and one that feared God with all his house, which gave much alms to the people and prayed to God always. He saw in a vision, evidently about the ninth hour of the day, an angel of God coming into him and saying unto him, Cornelius. And when he looked on him, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? He said unto him, Thy prayers and thine alms are come up for a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and call for one Simon, whose surname is Peter. He lodgeth with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the seaside. He shall tell thee what thou oughtest to do. Ladies and gentlemen, I don't know if we're going to get further than that in the story. Because I think there's a number of things in the, that much of the story that is really worth our considering tonight. The guy's name is Cornelius, right? But he's a centurion. A certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius a centurion. So you understand he's a Roman soldier, and not just a soldier, he's an officer. He's a man who has authority. It's an interesting thing that both in the Gospels and in the book of Acts, every time a centurion is mentioned, he's mentioned in a favorable light. He's a centurion. That means he is a man whose career has in fact been violence and duress. That's how, that's how you maintain order. That's how you maintain law and order. His primary tool is a sword. So he's a man who has professionally known some degree of violence. But that doesn't mean he's a bad man. He's not a wicked man. He is actually quite the contrary. He is called a devout man. Before I get to that, I should mention, he also says in verse 1, he was... He was of the band called the Italian Band. There are actually some things written about them in history. The Italian Band are a little bit different than any other unit that the Roman Empire had because they were volunteers. They weren't just Italian. They're Italian volunteers. They came from Italy and they said, we want to serve 
this empire. We want to serve. We want to serve Rome. Now, here's a guy, volunteered, has arrived to that place in life where he's a centurion. He's a man, hopefully, like that other centurion. In Luke chapter 7, that centurion who said of himself, I also am a man set under authority, therefore I have authority. I say to one, go, and he goes. I say to another, come, and he cometh. I say to my servant, do this, and he doeth it. It is worth noting that this man has been stationed by the empire in Israel, maintaining Roman law. Now, you understand that Rome has the rule over Israel because Israel, they stepped out from under the blessing. They stepped out from under the terms of the covenant that they had with God, that God made with them. They were conquered. They were conquered people. And here's a, a centurion, a Gentile, a volunteer for the Roman army, a centurion who has been stationed there, and he is there in Caesarea. Caesarea was very much the sort of Roman capital of Israel. It's a port city. Herod built it. It was an amazing architectural wonder, an amazing achievement, a big bustling town, but a very Roman town, filled with all of the things of Roman culture. You wouldn't know if you were at Caesarea by the sea, you'd have no idea that you're in Israel. You would see all of the theaters and the, and the big hippodrome and the, and the giant idols and everything else, and you go, I'm, I'm surely in Rome or Greece. It looked like that, but consider what it is written about this guy. He's called in verse two, a devout man, a devout man. Do you understand what that means? That means this particular Gentile who has been exposed to the whole pantheon of pagan gods and goddesses and demigods has turned his back on all of that to conclude that there is one God He's monotheistic and has come to discover that the God of Israel, the God of creation, has made a covenant with his people. He's called a devout man. That means he's not a Jewish proselyte, but he believes in this God, the God of Israel, Yahweh. He believes in him. Now look at what else is written of him. It says that not only does he, is he a devout man, but he's one that feared God. He's a God-fearer with all his house, men. Men, that means that his reverence for God was such and that his leadership was the kind that people would follow. Oh my goodness, excuse me. Uh, pardon me. Um, forget it. I never hit play, uh, record, so. I'll talk to them later. <laughs> the guy's leadership was such that his house followed him. Do you understand what that means? That means that his children and every member of his household, when you say his house, that would also mean and include his slaves that were owned by him, the extended family, Again, I read you the words. A devout man, one that feared God with all his house. 
The kind of leader that when he went, people went where he went. The kind of leader that when he went somewhere, people followed. And a true leader, I want to remind you of this, brothers, men. It's relevant to everybody, but particularly you men. <clears throat> we are called to be leaders. And real leadership pulls. It doesn't push. Real leadership pulls. People are drawn. There is a magnetism to what is real. To something that is real and genuine. Our faith, when it's real, is in fact infectious. It is. What else does it say about Cornelius? Besides the fact that he's a devout man. One that fears God with all of his house. It says he gave much alms to the people. And he prayed like, continually. He was praying all the time. Will you please consider together with me that this man, Cornelius, it must be said of him that he is walking in the light that he has. At the same time, he knows there's all kinds of things he doesn't know. He knows there's stuff he doesn't know and he is seeking what he does not know. That's the nature of his prayers. He is a man who is walking in the light that he has been given. And the only amount of, I suppose, light that he has, has already revealed to him. Remember the two tables of the law. Two tables of the law. There is, of course, the first table, which deals with our obligation to God. There is the second table of the law that deals with our Obligation to our fellow man. And that's what makes the cross such a fitting symbol of the law. The very thing that the Savior would die upon. The intersection of two lines. Our duty to God and our duty to our fellow man. And it's amazing to me that this Gentile recognizes he has a duty to both. And he's doing what he can. There's all kinds of things that he does not know. But he's walking in the light that he has. You can tell, listen to me, you can tell that this man knows that there are things that he does not know and his prayers are about what he does not know by the message from the angel. So he's known for giving alms. He is known at least by God, as one who prays to him continually. The angel that appears to him in a vision calls him by name Cornelius, a man who's probably not easily afraid, was afraid. We don't have a description of the angel. All we do know about angels is that they are a higher form of life than us, and the centurion was afraid. Humbled by the presence of one so much, so much greater. It says here, when he looked on him, he was afraid. And he said, what is it, Lord? And that, that's the appropriate response. In the presence of an angelic divine messenger. What is it? Do you understand what, what Cornelius has expressed instantly? Is What do you want, Lord? What do you want, Lord? And, and look at what it 
the angel says in response, he said, your prayers and your alms have risen up for a memorial before God. God has seen, God has heard your prayers. God has seen your generosity toward your fellow man. In other words, God has seen that you are doing what you know while you pray about what you don't know. What was the thing apparently that this Gentile centurion was asking for? What was the thing he was asking about? I can tell you what it was. Because the angel tells him. Doesn't answer his questions. Doesn't fill in his blanks. Because angels were not commissioned by God to go and preach the gospel. Who was that commission given to? That's right, us, the disciples of our Lord. And the honor to be the one opening the door. Both on the day of Pentecost, when the gospel first came to the Jews, and now, on this occasion, when the gospel would first officially come to the Gentiles, it would be Peter, someone chosen by the Lord, someone to whom the Lord said, I'll give you the keys. Look at what the angel says. Send now men to Joppa and call for one Simon, whose name is Peter. He lodgeth with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the seaside. He shall tell thee what thou oughtest to do. <laughs> Most of the materialistic church folk in the West offer up prayers of petition. There's nothing wrong with it. We should. We're invited to. But there's something really wrong with people who only pray about what they want. I submit to you, based on the angel's instruction that Cornelius' prayers were, what do you want? His concern was what he ought to do. Ladies and gentlemen, there are two different notions about freedom that have been in conflict here in our culture for a long time. When our nation was young and the vast majority of people were under the influence of spiritual revivals and Christian thinking and under the influence of this holy book, freedom was understood one way, a way that was abandoned and traded for another notion of freedom, a new notion that understands freedom as being able to do whatever you want. Freedom is being able to do whatever you want. Nobody can stop you. There are people who think that. They think that's what real freedom is. And the person who does whatever they want ends up becoming a slave to their want. Don't they? But what is freedom actually? Freedom is the very thing that Cornelius sought. Freedom is not being able to do whatever you want to do. Freedom is the power to do what we ought to do. What was Cornelius' concern? What am I supposed to be doing? What did the angel tell him? Peter would tell him. Peter would tell him what he ought to do. <laughs> Obviously, Peter's going to come there and deliver to him the gospel. You probably know the story. Peter's going to come there and deliver to him the news of Christ. 
And the call, right? The call for us to, to believe in Christ, to trust in the grace of God and the completed work of Christ. But let me suggest to you tonight, dear believers, dear brothers and sisters, it is the kind of prayer that pleases God and the kind that we ought to make our focus. All right, God, what ought I to be doing? <laughs> we, we are so messed up that we think we're doing great when we focus on not doing the stuff we're not supposed to do. <laughs> we're like, when our prayers are like, what am I supposed to quit doing? Most of us have a pretty good idea what that is already. Cornelius already is a man who has ceased to do the things that he knows he should not do and has gone beyond that to go, what am I supposed to be doing? What ought I to be doing? And I again want to give you, again, that first point. Cornelius was walking in the light that he had. pretty common for people to ask questions. Pretty common for people to scream their questions at the sky and often scream their questions while they shake their bony little fists. <laughs> the primary question from earth to heaven, you know what it is? Why? Constantly. <laughs> Which one presumes that we would understand if we got the answer that we could handle the answer, and two, assumes that everything is supposed to be going great for us. We deserve something other than what's happening, right? So the question is always, why, why? We don't even ask that when good comes. That's the legitimate time. We should be like, why do I ever know laughter? Why is there ever like sunny days? Why are there breaks between the hurricanes? Right? Why? That's when we ought to be screaming our why. If we actually understand who we are, what we deserve, what real justice is, and how holy God is, our question wouldn't be why. Our question would be, oh God, why? Why this goodness? Why do I know love? Why am I blessed with good things? Why? <laughs> and the answer to that would be because, because God is good. Cornelius is an interesting man to me because he's way beyond all of that presumption and has humbled himself to just do what he knows to be doing. There are many people who are not doing what they know they should do while they're still busy going, what am I supposed to do? You know what I'm talking about? There are people who are seeking for God to speak to them, seeking to know what they want guidance for something. They want guidance. What am I supposed to do? Which door? What's your will for me to live my vocation? What is your will? And, and, and they're asking that almost insincerely because they're not taking action on things God has already sent. In other words, they're not walking in the light that they have while they're demanding for more light. Probably not anybody at church on Wednesday night, but there's other people that should be here. That's who we're talking about. <laughs> I 
Cornelius was walking in the light that he had. Cornelius was doing what he ought to do. And his focus was what he ought to do. Not what can I get away with. Man, that's, that's the dumb thought of the Christian college kid. You know, can I drink and still be saved? Can I, can I smoke weed? It's natural. Didn't God bless us with all of this? It's like, and there's a lot of air-headed college professing Christian church kids who are worshiping at the church of weed and they should repent. It's a false church. It's pharmakia. It is wickedness. It is, it is drunkenness on a different substance and God has prohibited drunkenness. You guys all know that, right? God said, be not drunk. Uh-uh. He said, be not drunk of wine. There is an, an alarming, it, it's weird in, that in America right now, the opinions about marijuana have all gone in one direction of massive wholesale acceptance while all the science is going in the exact opposite direction, revealing that it is com incredibly destructive to the brain. Oh no, it's not just an all natural wonder weed. It's, it's not, it is not something straight from Eden. No, it's actually creating psychosis and massive brain dysfunction. And contrary to the old stereotypical pothead who was unmotivated and a little forgetful, because of human genetic engineering to produce a better product. Do you guys know this? I'm chasing this rabbit for a second. Do you know that the marijuana of today has more than twice the amount of THC of the, mar the marijuana back when it became really acceptable, in the hippie generation. And it is producing what they are now calling THC-induced psychosis. It's not producing laid back, whoa, unmotivated, really peaceful people. But instead it's producing violence. And that is one of the, one of the many explanations for the foolish violence and riots in our streets. I tell you, every single one of those Antifa rioters, every one of those masked punks are potheads. <laughs> and they all need to get saved, potheaded punks, cowards, but they need the Lord. <laughs> Before they end up in the hell they're headed for. There are far too many people, who, especially that season of life, going, how much can I do and how close to the world can I get? Can I still be a Christian? And you fill in the blank. You guys know that, right? That person is not concerned with what they ought to do. They want to know, what do I get to do? Oh, my goodness. You guys wouldn't believe this one. but There, there are a lot of Christians who regularly fornicate. No, it's true. Unmarried people think it's okay once, you know, when you're single, whatever. Do you know in Germany, the German language doesn't even have a word for fornication, for sex before marriage. They don't even have a word for it. Yeah, I was preaching there and I went on the rant about fornication and I saw all this going on, commotion. I go, what, what's going on? I don't speak German. Translator had to tell me. They don't have a word for that. 
I said, okay, well then you can use our word, fornication. <laughs> you don't have a word, we'll give you one. And knock it off. Quit it. <laughs> Repent of it. <laughs> well, they, they have a philosophy there that whatever, you know, once you're married, yeah, you, you can't be doing that. You've got to just only have sex with the person you're married to. But until then, where they didn't get that idea from the scriptures. But there's a lot of, and listen, um, in American churches, the numbers are as bad in the church as they are outside the church when it comes to fornication. It's a dirty world right now. It's a hard place. I don't know what it's like here. I, I assume that under the influence of the instruction you get from your pastors here, you know the will of God and you're seeking to live it, even the, you know, you, you might, we all fall short. I just want to say that I know where I pastor, everybody looks down on the youth at our church because almost everybody, it's a marriage culture and almost everybody gets married at 18 or 19. And the world around looks at them like they're a bunch of losers and there's something wrong with that and they're totally immature and not equipped. What are you doing? While the rest of the world is engaged in you know, years of fornication on their way, test driving all the other humans on the way to trying to figure out and then never getting married. I am continually telling, don't you let anybody look down on you. You know exactly what you're doing. What you're doing is what used to be done when we've walked in wisdom nationally. And that's a marriage culture. And you know, it's crazy how people, even Christian folk, even church folks will tell their kids, no, you need to get your education. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Send them off to the planet college, single, and expect them to survive all that temptation. That is, what, that is what I would say Spurgeon would call tempting the devil to tempt you. Go off to the planet college as a single person. No, I recommend to our teens, look, if you're gonna pursue any higher education, get with accountability and with, that, with, a, with a sex partner that you've signed up for life, I'm obviously don't just Get married for that. <laughs> Certainly not implying that. However, people do ignore, they, people completely forget that that's part of the purpose of marriage. The people that keep each other out of trouble for life. It's a gift from God. Send them off to the planet college. That crazy world has so many of them find themselves asking, and it's the first question they ask, it's the earliest one. They find themselves going, what can I still do and be a Christian? What can I do and still be a Christian? I mean, can I, do I have liberty to drink? Well, I just, I, I won't go on that subject. I will just tell you that I myself have never and don't ever Exercise any such liberty. I don't see that as a liberty that I have. Now, maybe you have that. I can't judge that. I can tell you the scripture does forbid drunkenness. And it's a difficult thing for people to drink and not get drunk, especially since the advent of the still. Our Lord Jesus turning water into wine. That was completely different. That wine had nowhere near the alcohol content of even the lightest duty alcohol that is commercially consumed. Now, the Apostle Paul did say in Ephesians, be not drunk with wine wherein is excess. In other words, 
in a culture where wine is a beverage and where wine is nowhere near as alcoholic and everybody does normally have it as part of their meal. In that kind of a culture, it takes excessive quantities to get you stupid. Now you guys all know, I know I'm preaching to the choir because you guys know this. It doesn't take much to get us stupid now. It really doesn't. We can create brain dysfunction with one shot. That's in the category of strong drink. Listen, I'll just throw this out to you. You can take it or leave it. For those of you who are asking the question, well, what can I do? Can I still drink and be a Christian? You're asking the wrong question. You should be asking what this guy was asking. What do you want me to do? Not what can I do? Well, on the subject, I will throw this out to you as well. I believe the Apostle Paul had the right, as he did, to Pastor Timothy. And in the letter, had to say to him, hey, listen, stop drinking just water. Use a little wine for your stomach's sake and your oft infirmities. King James Version. (laughs) In other words... He left Timothy in Ephesus. Ephesus has, is a Gentile town. The water's contaminated. And Timothy's sick a lot because of that contamination. Paul tells him, use a little wine. Put that wine in that water. That water is, in fact, disinfected. It's interesting that Paul had to actually tell Timothy to do that. Why? Because Timothy was not otherwise drinking any wine at all. None. And then when Paul tells him, He uses the word little with the word wine. And he tells him what for, for your stomach's sake. I submit to you that Timothy was completely abstinent from alcohol. Whose example is Timothy following? His Gentile father? I think not. I believe he's following the example of his spiritual father, Paul, who who maintained sobriety at all times and probably stayed away from wine. The very one who wrote that spiritual leaders cannot be given to wine. I I move on. I I get it. You know this already. I can tell by your face. (laughs) Your faces say, we know, move on. Please consider the humility of Cornelius, humble enough to know that there's more to know, humble enough to ask, what do you want me to be doing? What ought I to be doing? Can you hear me? That's the question, not what can I do? Can I still do this? (laughs) Can, Can I be a Christian and engage? And I don't know, can I be a Christian and use porn in private? Oh, I won't even go down that road. I'll just tell you, you're asking the wrong question. Besides, that's stupid, stupid question. One more point. No, two more. Cornelius was walking in the light that he had. He was asking the question, what ought I to do? He knows that there's more to know and he's humble enough to be seeking that. I'd like to point out to you my fourth point is that the reward for walking in the light that you have is more light will be given. 
You want more light to be given? You want God to speak to you? Would you like God to send a message to you? Well, you know what? You don't have to. Wait for an angelic visit. God will text you. He'll text you. If you open it and you meet him here. He'll tell, you know that. You guys know that. It's Wednesday night. I don't mean to be talking down to you. You guys are you're mature Christians. You know this stuff. And I'll tell you this. If you will seek him, if you'll do the stuff that he's telling you to do, more light will be given. If you'll walk in the light you have, more light will be given. Maybe it's the case that somebody in this room is like, I've been asking and asking God. All right, just, let, just consider the possibility that the thing you've been asking him about, the light that you're asking him to shine on something, might be connected to your not doing the things that you're, he's already talked to you about some stuff. He's already spoken. And you're ignoring that while bugging him about this other thing. I'm just saying, consider the possibility that what you really ought to do, all of us ought to be doing, is doing the thing that he told us to do. Let's just do that. While asking him, what else? Oh, you, any of you guys who have kids know what I'm talking about. You give them a list of things to do, and you know you can't even give it a, a long list. It's got to be short, right? Especially if your kids are junior high or older. <laughs> you give them a two-item, maybe three-item list, right? Go do this. Get this done. When you get that done, come see me. <laughs> do they not? They seldom ever even do the first thing. But often, they'll get the first thing down the show. And you go, All right, okay, what about those other two things? Uh, oh, Yeah. I'm telling you, that is exactly, that is, God has allowed us the opportunity to see ourselves. They're like a mirror. And I'm telling you, you go to God about them kids, and he'll go, oh, well, welcome to my world. <laughs> Dealing with you. <laughs> I believe that the reward for walking in the light that you've got and doing the things that you know to do God will give you more light. He'll speak to you. He'll show you. And finally, I'd point out to you what we read later in the story. On the other side of the Peter half, Peter gets a vision and Peter gets a visit. The Spirit of God tells him you got to go with these guys. Peter ends up going all the way to Caesarea, 30 miles up the coast, and he enters the house of Cornelius. You know what's really interesting? <laughs> when you read here in, in chapter 10, in verse 24, look at this. It says, And on the morrow after they entered into Caesarea, Cornelius waited for them and had called together his kinsmen and near friends. He called them together, his kinsmen and his closest friends. For what purpose? He knew that Peter was coming. He received the message that Peter was coming. He wanted so much to know what he ought to be doing. You guys? He wanted everybody that he loves to know what they should all be doing. In other words, he shared that very vital knowledge 
with everybody that he loved. Not only did he walk in the light that he had, not only did he do that, but he was given more light and he wanted that light to be spread. He wanted others to know what he was coming to know. Isn't it interesting that he doesn't have a private meeting with Simon Peter? He's like, ooh, ooh, Peter's coming. Everybody, I want everybody gone. I want this house empty. I want this place quiet. He wanted that place full. He's an others-centered guy. This is the reason why he's engaged in generosity and giving alms. Do you understand? I think there are these things for us to learn from Cornelius. I ask you tonight, are you convicted? <laughs> I didn't really come here for that. I am just came to share the word. But if you happen to be convicted and the Lord's dealt with you, and the Lord's speaking to you, about there are some things that God has talked to you about that you're not doing, or maybe there's some things that he's spoken to you about that you are doing that you shouldn't be. There are some things that should be stopped. There's other things that should be started or resumed. I, I guess that's the thing. Are you walking in the light that you've been giving, given? Are you doing the things that your father has dealt with you about? Are we, are we? God is really gracious. Doesn't take much to, he's a softy. And he loves his children so intensely that all you got to do when you're under conviction is confess to him your failure, acknowledge it, and then ask him for help to do what he's already spoken to you about. Just ask for his help and he will jump and run and scoop you up in a, in a spiritual sense. And he will be there going, I'm so glad you, I've been waiting for you to ask. Please pray with me. Father, I thank you for the privilege of being able to speak to my brothers and sisters, to just be able to meet up with a gathering like them, middle of the week. They live in a, a, a wonderful, beautiful, but crazy place. They're surrounded by a beautiful, and yet crazy and wicked culture. It may well be that here tonight, some of us have been so focused on doing the things you were not supposed to be doing and then feeling condemned and ashamed. So busy with that that we haven't even focused on what we ought to be doing. And there's others of us, perhaps, who have been failing to do the good that you called us to do, that you showed us the thing that you made plain to us. It was plain on one occasion and we, we made our commitment. God, I thank you for how gracious you are and how patient you are with us. I, I'm so very grateful for how patient you've been with me. Lord, I'm so grateful. And I pray that your Holy Spirit right now will just bring that kind of conviction, the gentlest of nudges from a loving Father to the hearts of your people. In the holy name of Christ, I pray. Work in our hearts, Lord. Bring us around to that place where Cornelius was. I'd say the glory be to you, not Cornelius. I'm amazed at your work in him. 
And I ask that you would so work in all of us that our focus would be, what do you want? What is it that we should be doing? What should we do? Dear brothers and sisters, continue to pray silently. Let me extend the invitation. I'm not going to ask for a show, and I'm not going to ask you to get up. I'm not going to ask you to come down or do anything like that. This is a believer's meeting. I'm just asking you, can I pray for you? Are you under conviction? Is the Lord dealing with your heart? If the Lord's dealing with your heart about something you ought to quit doing or something that you know God has called you to do, that you've been dragging your feet, neglecting, if what you've heard tonight is spoken to your heart, I'd like to pray for you. If you would just raise your hand and say, me, it's me. There's at least one, two, three. Or... I see you guys. The Lord sees you. Anybody else want to say me too? Oh, yeah. All right. Isn't the Lord kind? You guys, God bless you. All right, if you raise your hand, let's just be honest enough. I'm going to put mine up with you because I know there are things that the Lord has dealt with me about. Just today. Would you stand up if you prayed? I mean, if you raise your hand, stand up, and I'll, I'm going to pray with you. We can do this. We can sort of connect looking at each other. Let's just pray where you're standing. Father, you know our hearts. The very fact that we are here tonight is because of the work that you've done in us that we want to be here. We want to hear what you have to say. We came for this. We came so that your word could speak to us. All right, we heard you. Now please help us to take action. Please help us, Lord. Forgive our failure to do what we have been told. Forgive our doing what we have been told not to in our weakness. We need you to help us, Lord. You see, we're weak. We know it. So we pray that your Holy Spirit would minister to us as you have ministered conviction, would you please now minister the assurance of forgiveness to every single man and woman standing? Holy Spirit, minister the assurance of your love and your forgiveness. Give us the strength to do what we're supposed to be doing. Give us the strength to forsake what we ought not to be doing. Please work in our lives. Here we are, Lord. And like Cornelius we're asking you, what should we do? You show us what's next. But help us to do this that you've shown. Pray it in the name of Jesus, our King, his holy name. Amen. Amen. Let's all stand together. Come on, let's all stand with these guys. Come on. There you go. Thank you.